Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Some of you already know this, but my first ambition as a young person was not to be a pastor. Uh, Before I ever dreamed of being a pastor, my intention was to be a consulting detective. In fact, before that, my intention was to become a ninja, but but then I, I moved on and decided to become a consulting detective. I was influenced by my first great mentor, none other than Sherlock Holmes. I used to carry with me the complete stories of Arthur Conan Doyle about Sherlock Holmes. I had the original Strand Magazine editions that had the Sidney Paget illustrations inside them. And and I read the book at night. I I carried it around with me so I could study the pictures. And I, I really sought to be a sort of Sherlock Holmes, albeit, you know, a 13 year old Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, of course, was very perceptive and logical, but the thing that those of you who haven't read the stories may not realize is he's also kind of witty. Like, he he could turn a phrase. He, He had a great intelligence, and he wasn't necessarily the kind of intelligent person who suffers fools gladly. Uh, he did kind of enjoy putting them in their place. There's this famous exchange in the story, The Adventure of Silver Blaze, where one of these Scotland Yard detectives who uh, would never solve a crime at all if it weren't for Sherlock Holmes is a little bit put out that Sherlock Holmes is at the scene that's telling him how to do his job. Inspector Gregory is his name. And he asks, is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? And Sherlock Holmes replies to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Gregory, confused, says, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes answers, that was the curious incident. I've always loved that moment. The, 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 the fact the dog did nothing is the clue that unlocks the mystery. But there are more of those moments in Sherlock Holmes. You may know Arthur Conan Doyle, although Sherlock Holmes was his greatest creation, he, Doyle didn't love the popularity of Sherlock Holmes. He thought he was a serious, a more serious writer, and people were admiring him for the wrong things, and so he decided to kill off Sherlock Holmes. He killed him off in a story called The Final Solution that turns out not to be a final solution at all because people were outraged. They actually wore black armbands mourning the death of this fictional character until Conan Doyle had to bring him back and and figure out how to write the story where he returns from the dead. The name of that story is The Adventure of the Empty House. The Adventure of the Empty House, I'm not going to spoil it, but, but it too has some curious incidents in it, the most curious of which is that the empty house of the title does not remain empty. Maybe that's not so curious when you think about it, though, in light of Jesus' words. Because Jesus would tell you, that's the thing about empty houses. They never remain empty. An empty house never remains empty. An empty house eventually is going to become a dwelling place. In the text here, Jesus tells us a story. 
He gives us a parable. Now, in chapter 13, we're going to get a lot of parables, but here he's anticipating that by giving us this analogy, this metaphor to contemplate, but it's a really striking one. Now, it is a metaphor, so this is a symbolic story meant to speak about something other than the literal meaning, and yet the literal meaning is pretty remarkable because it has to do with demons, unclean spirits being cast out of people because the house in the metaphor is a person, as Jesus reveals at the very end of this passage. As you think about that metaphor of all of the parables, the stories Jesus tells, this one probably would have gotten people's attention because it had some real relevance, because this was something Jesus was actually doing. He wasn't just telling stories about demons departing from people. He was inviting, encouraging, and demanding that demons depart from people, right? This was a sign that he was performing. He was constantly casting out demons, and here he gives us a little bit of insight into the experience of being cast out, of being exercised. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be an unclean spirit, what sort of troubles the unclean spirits may have, what sort of difficulties they may endure, Jesus gives us a strange and curious insight into the life of an unclean spirit. One of the questions I was asked not too long ago for our weekly podcast for young people, the big question, was this, whether or not a person, after Jesus had cast a demon out of them, could then be, be re-inhabited by a demon. Like, like, is it possible that Jesus could have cast out an unclean spirit, and then later on down the line, that same person would be re-inhabited by a demon? That was the question that I was asked, and obviously this anecdote of Jesus suggests that maybe in theory that's possible, but to be honest with you, uh, when I was asked the question, my instinct was to go in the other direction. If you're curious, this is in episode 80, so you can go back and listen to it. But, but I kind of said, well, yeah, in light of Matthew 12, we might say hypothetically that something like that could happen. But honestly, I don't think it really could. Because when Jesus does these acts, he gives these signs, they're a kind of judgment on those demons. They're being cast out, like, like, like thrown out to their fate. And there's a sense of finality that comes with that action. Like maybe in theory, but I just can't imagine that anyone that Jesus would have cast a demon out of ever could have been re-inhabited by a demon. And then we get here in our series, and I'm encountering this text in context and thinking about the point that Jesus is actually making with this story, and I find myself realizing I should have taken that question a little more seriously. Because Jesus is doing more than suggesting that hypothetically it's possible for that person to be re-inhabited. He's kind of saying that unless something else, something greater happens, it is likely or even inevitable that that evil will return. And that's something that we got to think about. Because as I've reflected on this passage, I've found myself going back and saying, I, I, I've got to answer that question all over again. I don't think I took what Jesus is saying here seriously enough, and so I want to make amends. This is a warning. 
All through chapter 12, Jesus has been warning us, warning different people in different ways. As we question, as we push back, as we doubt, he's warning us about the nature of reality and about the judgment to come. And I think this story is not only a warning, but you could think of it as a summary of all the warnings that have gone before it. Like this is the, the ultimate. Like Jesus is going to kind of put the, the, the end point on these warnings in telling us this story. So here's what we need to do. First of all, we need to understand the metaphor itself. So we have to look at the story that he's telling and try to grasp what this empty house is all about. Secondly, we're going to have to ask how Jesus uses the idea of the empty house to give us a warning. Like, what is the point of the warning? What should we take away from it? And then lastly, if we're going to heed the warning, what would that mean? Like, what would we actually do differently if we listened to what Jesus is saying? So first of all, let's just think about the story of this unclean spirit who departs and then comes back. When I think about the story, I think about the demon. Right? He's the only character in this story, right? This story has character, it has conflict, it has a setting, it has a couple of settings. But the character, the protagonist, if you will, is an unclean spirit. And that's a little bit strange. In the Old Testament, it's very rare for Old Testament history to jump from the story of Israel to, for example, uh, the Philistines. Occasionally, you get a window into the minds of other people, but primarily it's the story of God working in God's people. It's very strange to get into the point of view of a demon. I can't think of any examples in the Bible where you're told the story of the demon from the demon's point of view, and, and it encourages a little bit of sympathy because he's cast out of his home and he wanders around looking for some other place to dwell and doesn't find anything. There's not much availability. Everything is pretty unhospitable until finally he goes back and you have a little bit of sympathy for him maybe. I mean, it's interesting to realize the moment of turning Right? He goes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then the unclean spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound like any other stories that Jesus tells? There's somebody else who makes exactly this turn, right? The prodigal son, when he reaches his lowest moment, when he's eating the same fodder that's given to the pigs, he has this moment of realization, I should go back to the house that I left behind. Like I didn't appreciate it then, but now I could go back. I, I've been humbled, but I'll go back and be a servant. Weirdly, this unclean spirit has a similar kind of, if you will, epiphany. And he refers to it as my house. I'm going to go back to the place where I lived, my dwelling place, my home. That's the way he thinks of the person whose life he once oppressed. And when he goes back, he actually likes what he finds. I don't know what kind of a dump it was when he was cast out. Probably not very nice. But when he comes back, this place has been set in order. It's been emptied out. It's been swept. It's been put in order. It's so nice that not only does he move back in, but he starts thinking of other demon friends who might enjoy living with him. And he gets seven other of his friends, and they all move in together. And it's like kind of unclean spirit party house. If, if you're a landlord, this is not the scenario you dream of. Right? This is not what you want to see happen to your property. 
for your renter to invite seven of his worst friends and all move in, you know the way the story is going to end. Indeed, as Jesus says, it was worse than it started. The end of that place was worse than where it began. And Jesus tells that story and then he makes an application. That is what it will be like for you. That is what it will be like for this evil generation. It'll be just like that. Okay, but what is that? What is the that that it will be just like? Is he comparing this evil generation to demons? No. He's comparing this generation to the house. Although the demon is the protagonist, the demon is not the point. The point of the story is the house. The image is the image of the empty house. Jesus is making a point here that the Apostle Peter makes using different images later on in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, quoting one of the Psalms, Peter writes, What the true Proverbs, sorry, not one of the Psalms, one of the Proverbs, what the true Proverbs says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, having washed herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Like the pig returns to the mud. Same idea told differently. Now, you may ask yourself in Peter's image, why? Why would the pig go through the trouble of washing only to return to the mud? It's actually pretty simple. There's no subtlety to it because the pig remains a pig. The pig has the power to clean itself, but it doesn't have the power to change its nature. It's still who it is. And so it returns to its dwelling place. Jesus is warning us along similar lines. You can drive out the evil. You can put your house in order, but if the house stands empty, then the evil will come back. The house in the metaphor is a person, but a particular kind of person. A person who has been, let's say, straightened out. A person who has gotten their life in order. If you think about the house as a rental property, if any of you have ever had the misfortune of renting out a property of yours to people who didn't really take care of it, there's a relief that comes when you finally get them out. You walk through and you see the damage that's been done. That's bad. You're sad that there's the damage, but now you can actually do something about it, right? You can clean it out. You can sweep the the dirtiness away. You can do the repairs that are necessary, right? You've emptied the house. You've swept it. You've put it in order. Now it's ready. Now it's back to the way that it was meant to be. A lot of us, when we think about our condition as human beings, we think about what the problem of sin is and what it needs, what the solution might look like. We think about it a lot like a property that's been neglected. We think about ourselves that way. Like what we need is what that property needs. We need a little clean out. We need to have the bad stuff taken out. We need to have some, some, some of the corners swept. We need to be put in order. We need things to be made right. Your life can be empty, swept, and put in order, but Jesus says that won't be enough. You can do everything that you possibly can in your own strength to put things right, to straighten yourself out, but it won't be enough. Just like it wouldn't be enough for a house. 
Like you could take that property and you could do all of that work, but if the result is that it stands empty, then it's going to get bad again. You'll have squatters move in. There'll be more damage. It could be worse than it was before. Because it's not enough to empty out the house and to repair the damage. Something more has to happen. The house needs to be lived in. Somebody needs to dwell there. And if the right person doesn't dwell in the house, somebody's going to. And it's not going to be the right one. That's the point that Jesus is making. You can't keep the house empty. Someone's going to dwell there. You are a house. As a human being, as a person, you were made to be a dwelling place. Someone's going to live there. Someone will dwell there. You will not be an empty house. The question is, who will live there? As you reflect on what Jesus is saying, he challenges or explodes even certain points. He exposes us to reality a little bit. He shows us the way things really are. For one thing, he explodes the idea of neutrality. He he shows that neutrality is a myth. We imagine that there's a sort of battle going on between God and Satan, between good and evil, that some people are on the side of good, other people on the side of evil, and a lot of people are on the sidelines, maybe deciding to opt out, to choose some other path. But Jesus says it doesn't work that way. There aren't any uninhabited dwellings because people were made to be lived in. Houses won't stand empty. Everybody is going to be indwelled by something. There is no neutral ground. There is no third place to stand. The empty person, so-called, will end up worse than before. So neutrality is a myth. Secondly, moral reform is powerless. We think it's the answer. When people get serious about living a good life, the path they often choose is the path of moral reform. I've had conversations with people who uh, either have never gone to church before or they went as a little kid because they were made to, but once they were old enough to decide for themselves, they, they stopped. But at a certain point in life, that changes. They decide they need to straighten up their act. They need to get more serious about things. They've advanced in years. Maybe they've had kids. They've started thinking about the future. And so part of all of that getting things in order is, is, is answering these, these religious, spiritual questions. Probably going to church is part of that. And so going to church can become a part of that moral project of reform. It's one of the ways we can clean out the house. One of the ways we can drive out that evil, sweep things, put things in order. And that pattern of of observance, that that ritual, can feel like we've established a, a good order in our lives that's taking us in the right place. But Jesus is saying it'll never take you far enough. Because that house, the house that was put in order, is the one that ends up inhabited by seven extra demons than it had to begin with. Because it was left empty, it was once again open to host all of the influences that had destroyed it in the first place. Self-righteous people often perpetrate the worst evils. 
if you go back through the annals of history and you ask, like, who did the worst things? Who did the most barbaric things? It wasn't the libertines. It wasn't the sinners. It wasn't people who checked out and just were drinking themselves, doing drugs, like, like living profligate lives, and then perpetrated these great evils. The worst evils are done by, by squared away, organized, future-looking people like who have plans for themselves and believe they are in the right. Self-righteous, moralistic people sometimes do the worst things in the world because they're just like this. Houses that have been put in order and have a confidence that they're on the right path and what they're doing is right. They're not conscious of the influence of evil in their lives. So neutrality is a myth. Moral reform is powerless. You need spiritual indwelling. You were made to be lived in. You've got to be indwelled. And if you're not indwelled by Christ, you will be indwelled by evil. It's interesting because Jesus is the one who was driving out the demons. And yet He's the one that gives this particular warning. And that suggests that it's possible to benefit from the ministry of Jesus in a temporal, this-life way and yet ultimately perish. It would be possible for a person to benefit from Jesus' earthly ministry, to hear what He says and think, you know what? That's a good principle. I should apply that to my life. Or it would be possible for a person to be infirm, to be diseased, and go to Jesus and receive that physical healing and think to themselves, you know what? From Him I got everything I need to now live the life I want to live. And it doesn't need to go any farther than that. And that wouldn't be enough. Without the gift of the Spirit, if we're not occupied by Him, if He does not live within us, we haven't gotten from Jesus what we need in order to live. Physical healing without spiritual indwelling is not salvation. If you think about the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus' words now and, and, and what these words mean for them, to be called this evil generation... Consider, they have experienced the ministry of Jesus in a way that we have not. These people have witnessed wonders that Jesus has performed that we have never seen. They have benefited from His presence there. Benefits even including the exorcism of demons. And yet there's been no repentance, no acceptance of Him, no commitment to Him. And so that generation, despite all the blessings that they have received, remains susceptible to evil, more so than ever. And Jesus warns that they will be judged, and when they are judged, it'll be worse for them than it would have been before. That's the warning. How will it be worse? Well, we said last week, it'll be worse in the sense that knowledge increases guilt, because they've experienced the ministry of Jesus, their guilt is greater for having rejected Him. It's a benefit to us 
if we have been exposed to the ministry of the gospel, if we have lived within the community of God's covenant, those are all beneficial things. We receive real blessings as a result of this, whether we believe or not. And yet, having heard the gospel proclaimed, having been called to repent and turn to Jesus, if we harden our hearts to it, it's worse for us than if we had never experienced these things in the first place. Now, of course, for the Pharisees, for their generation, there was also another sense in which it was worse. If you think about the metaphor here of the empty house, there was a a literal judgment that was on the horizon in their generation. There was another empty house that was going to have to be dealt with. Not just the empty house of the people, but the empty house of the temple. That the temple, where the presence of God had dwelled, the place, the building, the structure that they had looked to and said, that is the house of God, that place was about to be destroyed. It was about to be taken from them. There was an empty house that would not be reoccupied because God would see providentially that it would be utterly destroyed. And as you think about that image, the loss of the temple... You think about all the benefits the temple once represented and to have that taken away. Jesus is saying it would be worse for you than that literal taking away of that temple, of that dwelling place. That's the judgment. It's not enough to be a good moral person. It's not enough to clean up your act. You must be indwelled by the Spirit of Christ. You must turn to Him and repentance with faith. It's not enough to experience the good things of the kingdom to be released from the power of evil because evil's always ready to come back. Because evil is always ready to re-inhabit your life unless it is filled with the Spirit of Christ. What that means is to the extent that the message of the church is just moralism, to the extent that people come to church and all they hear is you need to clean up your act, you need to stop doing bad things and start doing good things, we're actually not hearing what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not just calling us to renovate our property. He's not just calling us to restore the damage done. He is calling us to be indwelled by Him. That's different. If you were to go back to Second Peter, I, I quoted earlier the very end point of what Peter was saying. But if you go back to Second Peter 2, Peter makes it much clearer. This is Second Peter 2, starting in verse 19. He says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's the warning. Fortunately, whenever Christ warns us, there's always hope. 
implied in the warning. You don't warn people because there is no hope. You warn them because there is hope. You warn them so that they might heed the warning. And as Jesus holds up to us the peril of an empty house, there's also the promise of a house filled with him. Only the house where God dwells can truly flourish. And if you think about the point of putting the house in order, isn't that the point, flourishing? If you ask yourself why you would do this, it's in order to flourish. The reason why we we fix things up, the reason why we decorate, the reason why we try to make things right, we, we don't want our doors to squeak and we want them to close properly and all of the kind of stuff you do to a habitation to make it what it ought to be. You don't do that just for the sake of doing it. You don't do it because you just like everything to be perfect. You do it because you imagine a kind of life that will be lived there. Right? You envision what will happen when it takes place. Whenever we do home improvement projects, it happens occasionally, pretty rarely. Mostly they they go uh, in unexpected directions. But when we do them, when I hang a light or I I put up a picture or whatever, I do it with this sort of picture of of people walking in and saying, hey, you did a good job on that, that light hanging. I really like the way you illuminated that corner. I really appreciate how it's not as dusty here as it was. That's really you picture life taking place in this structure. The house in order produces a good life. A person who is in order lives a life of flourishing. That's why we pursue order. That's why we want to see the evil swept away. Because we want to flourish. Because we want a good life. We imagine that we can create fullness of life by building an ordered house. But actually... It's the other way around. It's the other way around. You don't build the house and then get flourishing. Instead, the flourishing comes first. The house or the person must be filled with life in order to flourish. You're a human being. Human beings are made to be dwelling places for God. No human being can flourish as an empty house. No human being can remain an empty house for long. You're only going to flourish if you are a house for God. In the same way that true obedience is only possible after forgiveness, that sanctification only comes in gratitude for a forgiveness already given freely. Real flourishing must come before our lives are put in order. And trying to get your life in order before you know Christ is getting things exactly backwards. True flourishing is only possible after indwelling. So, it is possible to benefit from Christ, but not be indwelled with Him, clearly from what He's saying. Don't believe that just because you've experienced some temporary benefit from his word, that you have everything from him that you need. In fact, you need all of him. You need him living in you. God is not saying to you, get your house in order, clean up your act, straighten up and fly right, because you can't do it. 
because you don't have the power to empty your house, and you certainly don't have the power to keep it that way. What God is saying is, be filled with me. Turn to me. Let my life enter you. Live in me as I live in you. That is what he calls us to do, and that is what I urge you to do. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.